Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Yin Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Amy Suayoshi speaking about her book, Discriminating Sex, White Leisure and the Making of the American Oriental, published in 2018 by the University of Illinois Press. Amy Suayoshi is the Interim Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University, where she is also Professor of Race and Resistance Studies and Sexuality Studies. She received her PhD in History from UCLA. In addition to her teaching, scholarship, and administration work, Amy is a founding co-curator of the GLBT History Museum in San Francisco. Discriminating Sex is her second book. Her first was Queer Compulsions, Race, Nation, and Sexuality in the Intimate Life of Yone Noguchi, published in 2012 by the University of Hawaii Press. In our conversation, Amy shares experiences and insights from her journey through academia, as well as her work on public history and community activism. I hope that you enjoyed this interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Ian Shin, one of the co-hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Amy Suayoshi about her book, Discriminating Sex, White Leisure and the Making of the American Oriental, which was published just this year in 2018 by the University of Illinois Press. Amy is currently serving as Interim Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University, where she also holds appointments as a Professor of Race and Resistance Studies and a Professor of Sexuality Studies. Amy, welcome to our program. Thank you so much, Ian. Amy, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I was born in uh, Daly City. My parents at the time lived in San Francisco in California. Uh, They immigrated here in the early 1960s, and all the hospitals were full in San Francisco. So my my folks had to drive to Daly City, and that's where I was born. Um, But uh, our family has been very connected to the San Francisco uh, Japanese-American as well as Asian-American community through the 1970s. Um, And then my family later moved to San Mateo. Um, and that's where I primarily identify as um, where I grew up. I consider myself a peninsula kid uh, for sure. Um, my, I'm a Japanese American, but I'm also mixed. I'm uh, Okinawan. My dad is uh, Okinawan. Uh, he was born in Hawaii, but he went he went back to Okinawa before the war. He's what's called Kibe Nisei, and my mom is Shinisei. She's a recent immigrant uh, from Japan, and it very much shaped who I am today. Uh, my mom was uh, very much a, a teacher, even as she was a, a mother. Um, and she actually, for her, uh, she had a regular day job. And on the side, she also taught uh, Japanese to uh, Asian Americans, particularly Japanese Americans who were involved in the Asian American movement. She always believed in issues of justice as well as community. She would assign books on uh, the Japanese American uh, incarceration camps for me to read. Um, And when I say assign, I say it sort of jokingly because she was a teacher. But instead of uh, giving me toys for Christmas, she would actually give me a a book about camp to read. And then um, also talk to me about uh, Japanese imperialism and how uh, Japan did horrible things in Okinawa as well as Korea. Um, And so she instilled in me at a young age that it's important to be thinking about justice and equality and honoring people's uh, own right to govern themselves and have their own culture. Um, and it shaped the way in which I became uh, a historian um, today. I went to Barnard College in New York for undergrad. It's a women's college of Columbia University. Uh, and then I worked as a Peace Corps volunteer for a couple years in Cameroon. I always was interested in in social work and community organizing, and I believed that that was the path that I was going to go. And then in Peace Corps, one of the lessons that we learned about development was that the most lasting kind of development is one that's done by the community members 
themselves. And I thought about who I was as a, as a child of immigrants, um, you know, who went to college, who felt empowered by history, um, and, and at the same time felt like I almost dropped out of college. I was actually on academic probation for uh, four semesters. I thought that, you know, uh, I should go back and teach history. Um, I, I've, there's a way in which history at Barnard really saved my uh, life in terms of um, enabling me to uh, boost my GPA and give me something that I was interested in studying. I went in as a, a pre-med student majoring in French, and I didn't do well in the French classes nor in the science classes. Uh, and it was really the history classes that kept me engaged and uh, through school. So I saw history as a site of empowerment and social change, and I believe that um, if I went back to school and got a degree, I could teach at the community college and inspire other children of immigrants who might be struggling in school to stay in school, be engaged in, in academics through history. And so uh, that's how I came to become a historian. I didn't really know that I wanted to do um, sexuality studies until I got to grad school. Um, I'd been studying women's history as an undergrad, which was very moving to me. Uh, but I didn't really know what gender was until uh, I arrived in the in my PhD program. This is in the mid '90s, um, and both gender and queer theory was were uh, super kind of hot at the time, um, and it really changed my life. I was kind of just coming out and thinking about the ways in which gender and sexuality um, could be fluid. Um, as well as sites of radical identity building. And it really kind of um, changed the way that I could view uh, history as well. And so uh, I became interesting, interested particularly in uh, gender and sexuality studies within uh, Asian American history. That's a really wonderful um, introduction, and I really appreciate you sharing as well your your family's background and how it came to inform the way that you you look at the the work that you do and also the activism um, that you do uh, within the community. Um, who did you work with at, at Barnard? And I, I ask that in part because um, I wonder how much of uh, Asian American history or uh, women's history was being taught at Barnard uh, while you were there and, and whether that uh, did or did not contribute to the ways that you thought about the work that you wanted to do uh, uh, down the line in graduate school. At Barnard College, I worked with a, a historian, pretty famous women's historian named Rosalind Rosenberg. Um, and her class really inspired me to think about women's history and re-engaged uh, me back into the field of history as an undergraduate. Um, after I took her women's history course, I decided to become a history major. Um, be before, I hadn't, hadn't taken a history course at Barnard because I had done well in history as a high school student uh, and, and placed high enough in the AP history course that I was exempt from college-level history courses. Um, so it might have seemed like a, a blessing at the time, but uh, in, the, in a way, it sort of disabled me from coming back to this discipline that I had no clue that I, I really enjoyed and also had a special skill in, in engaging in. So I, I took a number of classes with, with Rosalind Rosenberg, and it was uh, super life-changing in terms of my re-engagement with history. Um, and then I also took a grad seminar with her while I was still a senior. And admittedly, I was a terrible student um, as a senior in her grad seminar class. I think there was only five of us, and um, sometimes I would arrive so tired to class from my student activism that I would actually fall asleep in this five-person seminar. And... Uh, Rosalind Rosenberg perhaps rightfully told me that I, I wasn't grad school material when I told her that I was applying to PhD programs. Um, at Barnard also were required to complete a senior thesis. All the undergraduates are required to complete a senior thesis. And there was no Asian Americanist at Barnard at the time. Um, and I ended up working with uh, a Chinese historian. His name was Richard Lufrano, who was a white guy. And he was actually super wonderful, uh, very gentle, kind of made, let me do whatever I wanted to do, um, was a great source of support. Um, at the time, I think he was an assistant professor. And so he wasn't allowed to give me a grade on my senior thesis. Um, just out of his own accord. Um, and and he had told me that when I finished my thesis that he was going to uh, give me 
an A or something like that. And he had to consult with another senior faculty member in history who decided that I deserved a A minus or a B plus or something like that. And I was crushed. Um, uh, I felt like I had worked really hard on this thesis. And I asked uh, Professor Lufrano at the time, do you think that my thesis was, you know, not worthy of an A? And he said to me, Amy, if you think you're going to go on to grad school, then you're going to have to grapple with the fact that people are not going to be happy with your work. Um, and that was really moving to me. I had already revealed to him that I was thinking about, uh, you know, uh, going on and becoming a historian. And he had uh, told me that it was a rough road ahead of me. But the reality of the fact that even as an undergrad, that um, if someone didn't like my work, that uh, the it would impact sort of how the work would be viewed in terms of its quality was a real eye opener for me. My undergraduate thesis was on a comparison of Angel Island and Ellis Island. And basically my argument was that um, folks were super racist at Angel Island and they used harmful pesticides and kept folks, uh, you know, in in sort of locked up in Angel Island longer than in Ellis Island, which processed the large number of white immigrants coming into the U.S., whereas Angel Island processed uh, the large number of Asian immigrants coming into the U.S. Um, with that said, also, um, I remember when I finished my degree at, at history and I was I finished my, my thesis and I was leaving uh, Barnard, uh, Professor Lufrano was very proud of me. And then he revealed to me that he had had a Chinese American girlfriend, um, which was a little bizarre. And only, only, you know, decades later, I realized that maybe he was sending me some kind of inappropriate signal. Um, with that said, I, I also am super grateful to him for having uh, nurtured my way through history. Um, and it, but it's, it was definitely a, a complicated process. There was one other faculty member who I looked to, um, uh, not necessarily as a mentor, but as a source of support. Uh, her name uh, is Judith Weisenfeld, uh, and she was African-American and also queer. I didn't know at the time that she was queer, um, but, I, uh, but I had taken a class with her on African-American religion. And at the time, it seemed like she was just one of two faculty members at um, Barnard, who were actually uh, African American, and so she was very moving and, and inspiring to me. Um, and I would frequently pop into her office just to say hello and, and see how she's doing. Um, only after I came out later, I would I realize that I probably was also drawn to her uh, because she was also uh, queer as well. Uh, my undergraduate. Uh, experience was not super positive in terms of my pathway to grad school. Um, with that said, uh, the, the path in grad school also was pretty difficult. Uh, I had a number of faculty members who didn't want to work with me because I was working on a queer project. They would say that, you know, it's not possible to do a project on, on queerness and immigration. Um, also, uh, I had a number of folks who said things like, uh, I can't believe you've got this far writing the way that you do, um, as well as, uh, you know, I failed my comprehensive exam as well. And usually if you fail your comprehensive exam, you have one more chance to take it and then you get kicked out of the grad school. So there's a way in which I've always felt like I was hanging on uh, by my fingernails on the edge of, of building as I was, uh, you know, going through school. I, I think my my most moving mentors have been here at San Francisco State after I became a faculty member here. Uh, Tomas Almaguer, who uh, writes on racial formation as well as uh, gay Latinos, um, was has been an incredible source of support and mentorship. Uh, ben Kobashigawa, who is uh, taught the history courses in Asian American studies, also would invite me over for Oshogatsu, which is Japanese New Year's, and then come over and help me trim uh, the trees in my dad's backyard. Uh, and and both Tomas and Ben were in, incredible um, kind of cheerleaders in terms of helping me get through uh, tenure and promotion here at State, as well as uh, think about my research is interesting and compelling, and I'm super, super grateful for the two of them. 
In terms of being an administrator, uh, you know, Ken Montero ha- was has been a, a, a wonderful mentor. He was the dean of the College of Ethnic Studies when I was still still an associate dean and ha- has always given me such sort of generous support for me to also continue to pursue my research even uh, as I've been an administrator. Notably, uh, both Tomas and Ken are, are queer, and so I frequently like to say the queens of the College of Ethnic Studies uh, really mentored me uh, in, in, my, in my path as an academic as well as an administrator. Oh, that's really. I I, I want to thank you for your honesty and in, in sharing those those stories with us. Um, I think, as I said earlier, you know, one of, I, I I actually don't have a, a great handle on who who's listening out there, um, uh, aside from the raw numbers. But I imagine there are a number of us who um, maybe folks like me who've just finished graduate school and and uh, or or uh, are not that far out of graduate school and are, are being the, beginning their careers um, and um, have those same questions about mentors and um, uh, receiving feedback and, and and processing some of the, the difficult things um, and sometimes problematic things that people say uh, to to junior scholars so Amy I really appreciate your your sharing that I want to ask one more question question about your personal background before we segue to the book, and, and that's about your activism. You mentioned that even at Barnard, uh, sometimes you would come to uh, uh, Rosalind, Rosalind Rosenberg's class um, a little bit tired because you were engaged in, in activism. I know as well um, that you uh, are also a founding member and co-curator of the GLBT History Museum in San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about some of that work um, and how it has uh, informed your scholarship um, and, and teaching um, within the classroom and outside of it? So uh, at the GLBT Historical Society, um, I first joined as a uh, as a board member. In fact, um, I was at a birthday party for Susan Stryker, who's considered the founder of trans studies, and um, we were all sitting in a hot tub. and I and I um, spoke to uh, another historian there uh, who was involved in the Historical Society, and. Uh, you know, when I found out that he was a board member, I said, you know, oh, it's been a dream of mine to be on the, on the board of the GLBT Historical Society. Uh, and he had said, oh, it's a dream. Well, you know, you should shoot higher or something like that. He joked around with me. And then he immediately got me on the board. Um, the, the board have, for a long time has um, had this problem where they, they have a lot of white folks on the board, but they have very few uh, folks of color and also um, a small number of women as well. And so uh, Don Romesburg was an incredible advocate in in getting me on the board. Um, when I was on, when as, as soon as I joined the board, I, I felt a little dislocated, alienated. I, I didn't really know where I fit in. Um, and the Historical Society at the time was uh, just beginning to mount a pop-up gallery, which would later become the GLBT History Museum. And Don was one of the lead curators, and he asked me to be a, a, another lead curator with him. And that was really the opening of my engagement with the GLBT Historical Society as well as the museum. Um, And it was incredible to be in such a white, a gay white space, right? And then watch like just a few folks be, you know, diehard uh, activists. Uh, I remember uh, for one case, it was a case, exhibit case on erotica. And basically Don and I were managing um, historians as well as uh, uh, on each case to to come up with artifacts for each case. Uh, We managed both um, historians, volunteers, and curators to organize each case. And there was this one case on erotica, and Gerard Koskovich was in charge of that case with a bunch of other volunteers. And the the thing that the volunteers had all pulled was it was all images of basically white gay male porn. Um, and Gerard was like, this is inappropriate. We cannot have this much white dick. And basically, they just went back and forth. I, I didn't have to engage in the fight at all. Um, Gerard did with, with his other uh, volunteers on the case. And witnessing that and watching their commitment, uh, you know, gave me such pride and also a commitment to the Historical Society and the History Museum. I think there's a way in which 
both uh, historical societies as well as history and particularly queer history seem like super white and super male spaces. And um, within that space, I was able to find a place for myself where I felt valued and listened to. And so it's just been an incredible environment for me to both flourish as a curator, right? And I would never call myself a professional curator, but I'm more of a volunteer recreational curator. And it's also giving given me um, the ability to allow community groups to come in and mount exhibits in the museum. So in the museum, we have two galleries, both um, a front gallery, which is like a community gallery, and then a back gallery, which is more like our permanent exhibits. And we uh, actually invite and encourage community members to come and, uh, you know, propose exhibits on the issues that are important to them. And so uh, with that, it's been a way for me to do a number of exhibits on queer women of color, also uh, Asian American queers, right? I mean, these are things that usually don't show up in museums. Um, I just recently co-curated a poster exhibit on uh, Angela Davis with another curator, Lisbeth Telefson. Um, And so just a, a wonderful place where I can really use history as a site of activism, I um, give tours there at the museum as well. Uh, there's a, the, the high school that I went to in San Mateo is called Aragon High School. And uh, they formed a GSA, you know, long after I graduated. But now whenever the Gay Straight Alliance comes to the GLBT History Museum, they ask me to give a tour, which is kind of funny. Uh, it, it feels funny for me only because I was not queer when I was in high school and I never imagined San Mateo Uh, let alone Aragon High School, to be a a great place to be queer. Um, And so it's allowed me to be in a space where I can make history more accessible beyond the classroom. And I hear folks who come in uh, to the museum stunned about how much material there is about folks of color, uh, women of color, um, and also to see sort of the GSAs come in where the parents are more excited about the exhibits than the children, uh, than the students, I should say, sorry. Um, it makes me feel sort of inspired about um, the present as well as the future of kind of queerness in America. That's maybe a, a really actually sort of poetic transition to for us to, to turn to talking about the book because you do address within the book uh, sort of the idea of um, San Francisco as a as sort of a wide open city right that is this sort of uh, able and happy to talk about and and uh, um, and view you know different kinds different forms of sexual practices and uh, uh, sexual communities um, and and how that is in fact uh, implicated within uh, the projects of white supremacy and and heteronormativity and heterosexual uh, um, uh, supremacy. Um, so, so maybe we can transition to talking about um, your book, Discriminating Sex. Um, and I, I want to start by just asking you how you how you came to the project, um, and and sort of what prompted you to to write this book, and and um, how how the process of doing research um, and how your writing process uh, kind of uh, evolved over time and developed over time. So when I was thinking about my dissertation, I knew I wanted to do uh, a project on immigrants, um, first generation in particular. Um, And I also knew that I wanted to do a project on Asian Americans as well as gender and sexuality. Um, And it seemed to me that San Francisco would be an ideal location uh, because of its reputation as a wide open town, particularly at the turn of the century in the 1890s. There were new ways of of being women and men that were not available previously. Women had begun to uh, wear bloomers. They had discarded their their long Victorian dresses and wear bloomers and ride bicycles and go to college and start working in offices at larger numbers than ever before. Men, too, were also uh, uh, populating um, more office jobs rather than sort of laboring jobs. And this was the rise of middle class masculinity that was both refined and genteel, um, as well as kind of longing for something more rugged, right? Uh, And in the 1890s, uh, there was also um, 
more works coming out on uh, sexology. People were interested in, in sexuality, but not really, uh, it wasn't totally public yet. The, the, it wasn't sort of part of popular culture, mass culture yet. But what was going on among folks in the 1890s was there was this rise of what uh, is called romantic friendships, where men and women would have passionate friendships between members of the same sex, and it would be deemed completely appropriate. And so um, a guy could write another love letter, um, you know, showering kisses on them, and it would be considered just part of, uh, you know, brotherhood or what we might today consider a bromance, uh, but not queer necessarily, and certainly not gay. Uh, um, and so what happened was, was that to me, it seemed like San Francisco was the ideal city to look at the intersection of all these things. And I just started by doing what's called what what historians call needle in a haystack research, particularly in, in queer studies. It's hard to find acts of same-sex sexuality or gender impersonation. And so we just have to read the newspaper day by day, look at court cases, right? I mean, just really go through every every source that's available. Uh, I also looked at morgue records as well to look for things. Um, and I had compiled this massive amount of information on immigrants um, in the city of different races. Um, and Asians dominated the press at the time because San Franciscans were fascinated with Asians, even though they made up only uh, 3% of the city. Um, and there were also real robust conversations about gender and sexuality in the press, as well as in theater and in music. Um, what I realized, though, was that as I finished my dissertation, that um, I was exhausted, as most people are after they finish their dissertation. And I didn't really know where to go. Um, what I did know was that there was one one third of one chapter that people really loved, which was uh, about Yone Noguchi, who is the father of Isamu Noguchi, the famous Asian American sculptor. And so I and and he uh, Yone Noguchi actually, in fact, had an affair with uh, Charles Warren Stoddard. And so I took the piece about uh, Yone and Charles and and wrote my first book, uh, which came out in 2012 called Queer Compulsions, and basically took almost uh, a 10-year break from this book, Discriminating Sex. And not until I finished uh, Queer Compulsions was I able to turn back to discriminating sex. Uh, and I think it was a productive break, only because um, for my first project, I really wanted to do something that was affirming for queer Asian Americans. And I felt that the dissertation with all of its materials was not affirming <laughs> for queer Asian Americans. And it was more a tale of white supremacy. And as you know, we all know in, in ethnic studies, um, you know, racism exists, white supremacy exists, and so it's not always so uplifting to document it, right? And so we like to kind of focus on the stories of agency and change. And so the way I think about this process for me has been that um, only after I was able to write the book about a queer Asian, which is still kind of a sad story, um, was I able to kind of more rigorously assert um, an argument around white supremacy uh, in this second book, Discriminating Sex. That's fascinating because I was I was looking at your CV earlier and trying to figure out what exactly the relationship was between your first book, as you said, and 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 this book. And, and now it makes so much sense as to uh, both the way that you, you try to position one as, as you said, sort of more affirming for uh, queer Asian Americans and then this one um, as, as sort of the larger context of um, the, the sort of white supremacy and heterosexual supremacy that, that um, was all also ruling and dominant in, in San Francisco, or that came to be really dominant in San Francisco in the early 20th century. You, you've talked a little bit um, about sources already, but I wanted to, to ask you to, to, to say more about that. Uh, one of the things that um, I think readers of the book will notice immediately is the variety of sources, um, which you also mentioned, um, you know, not only um, the the public the print publications like the Overland Monthly and the San Francisco Call, which uh, sort of help to anchor um, a lot of the stories that that you tell within discriminating sex, uh, but also things like uh, uh, plays, uh, music, uh, novels. Um, the 
other aspect of sources that I noticed was that you did to you seem to have done both sort of quantitative work and qualitative work when it came to these publications. You were able to track uh, sort of how many articles appeared in a particular publication on a particular theme. For example, how many mentions of Chinese or Japanese men uh, or women, um, and also the ways in which. Uh, um, those mentions were presented to to their readers. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your sources, um, especially those that are, uh, um, you know, would, would sort of fall more in the interdisciplinary realm uh, of historical documentation, um, but also how you how you did that sort of quantitative work. Because as you said, you know, there are so many of these stories. How did you keep track of all of them? How did you run the kind of um, quantitative analysis on how many stories appeared? Were you, I hope you weren't sort of counting them one by one by hand, because that, that would be uh, crazy making. But perhaps there, there might be um, uh, some other methods that you use that, that folks might be interested in hearing about. Um, so, in fact, I, I did begin counting them uh, when I first started the dissertation in the 90s. It was totally nuts. Uh, soon after, though, what's so wonderful about technology is that um, things get digitized, right? So uh, parts of the Overland Monthly are digitized. Uh, parts of the call are also digitized. Um, and all the um, historical newspapers from San Francisco, they're digitized in ProQuest. And so the other wonderful thing about waiting 10 or more years to publish the book was that I was able to use ProQuest and actually do a search on the word mongoloid, for example, and then do a search on the word oriental, for example. And they actually count the number of times mongoloid uh, versus oriental appear in various articles. And you can see the arc. They actually do a little bar graph arc. And so as much as I would like to say that I you know, counted all these and was able to quantify them through this tedious process. Um, that's how it began. And then I kind of gave up because it seemed insane after a while. Uh, but then ProQuest really enabled me to kind of do uh, what you see now as the quantitative uh, data uh, in, in the book. And that was pretty incredible for me to be able to do that. It was something that I wanted to do before, but I didn't think I could physically do. Uh, but uh, the web and technology really allowed me to do that. I think the work of a historian is always interdisciplinary. I think that particularly when you uh, look at communities who have been understudied, such as Asian Americans or queers or even women, that we really have to kind of dig through a lot of a lot of things to just find one thing. Um, and so, in fact, in, in order for us to find 10 or 20 things, it means, um, you know, digging through even sort of 100 times that kind of material. Um, and that's also the kind of detective work that I love about history is gathering all these stories that might seem anomalous or, or odd or, or queer, as, as one might say, and then tying them into a larger argument that might hold significance for, um, you know, U.S. history, but also, you know, identity building and the way people think about uh, gender and sexuality. I deliberately wanted to look at a wide array of sources, and I, and I think that this is common also in the field of history is that we can't just look at one source, right? Um, there's a way in which historians um, feel compelled to look at, at everything that's possible. And we actually have to force ourselves to stop looking in order for us to start writing. Uh, because, you know, the, the kinds of sources that you could find and look through are just endless, right? Um, so in that sense, I, I, I feel like I'm a, a pretty typical historian, that I was trained as a very rigorous and, and thorough uh, researcher to look at all different kinds of sources. And particularly because uh, I'm in a field that is under-researched, it means more searching than sort of, you know, someone that might be doing work on George Washington, for example. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um one of the other uh, sort of things I wanted to pick up on before we start going into the, the chapters is, is just reading off of the, um, the subtitle of the book, which talks about white leisure um, and the making of the American Oriental. I wondered if you could uh, sort of speak about your interventions in, in the histories of, of leisure, specifically urban leisure, um, 
you've talked a little bit about the the interventions you hope to make in, in Asian American history and, uh, and and queer history. Um, what about the book um, speaks to specifically leisure versus other pursuits uh, where issues of sexuality, gender, and race uh, also concern uh, um, the the folks that are living and working in San Francisco during this time? So in histories of leisure, uh, typically folks uh, talk about it in terms of sort of the rise of metropolitan centers, right, urban culture, right, also changing gender norms uh, that um, do grant some freedom, even as it also uh, allows for moments of exploitation, particularly of women. Uh, There's few works that talk about sort of leisure in terms of same-sex sexuality, right, particularly during this time period, and then also um, few works that talk about sort of how freedom or freedom of expression or expansion of gender norms through leisure actually uh, propagates West uh, racist stereotypes. So typically we think of moral anxiety and fear as uh, propagating stereotypes. Uh, but I'm hoping that uh, this book makes the contribution that, in fact, freedom also uh, creates stereotypes and, and propagates, creates inequalities as well. Um, and that's sort of where I, I see my intervention. There are a number of works, um, such as on uh, Disneyland, that talk about uh, how, you know, creating Disneyland was also about uh, white supremacy, right? Uh, but for the most part, during this time period, it's really about sort of how America is growing um, and what that means for, for white folks. Um, and so I'm hoping that in leisure studies, uh, my book is able to kind of intervene on what, what it means for Asian Americans um, as white moments of leisure are expanding. I think that the sentence to me that spoke most powerfully to that particular sentiment was um, you wrote in chapter five um, that uh, um, uh, white folks uh, had a a sense of entitlement for self-enrichment without a care about its consequences for communities of color. To me, that was just such a beautiful way of encapsulating sort of that, that overall argu- argument uh, about the, uh, the significance of leisure uh, for, for uh, gender, sexuality, and race um, in turn of the century to uh, San Francisco. One of the, um, I feel like we, we've, you've already led us through uh, some of the, um, questions that I was going to ask you about the, the chapters, um, I should note for, for our readers um, that in addition to an introduction uh, and, a, and an epilogue, um, that the book uh, goes through through seven chapters. Um, and uh, the, the book is, is uh, 150 pages, which really, uh, or 160 some odd pages, I think maybe, um, w- which um, really speaks to the sort of very concise way um, that, that you uh, are able to work through some of these historical questions and problems. Uh, one of the things I notice about the book is that it really covers so much ground. It almost serves as a kind of concise synthesis and summary of Chinese and Japanese American history in early 20th century San Francisco. Um, the first couple of chapters, um, um, which you've already touched on, uh, talk about the kind of demographic and sociocultural scene in San Francisco um, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, that San Francisco was overwhelmingly white, that as you said, Asian Americans and Asians formed only 3% of the population. Um, and that San Francisco uh, during this time was considered a wide open town. And in chapter two, uh, which is entitled a wide open town, question mark, white and heterosexual supremacy in permissive San Francisco, you talk about various racial and sexual crossings. Um, these include interracial romance, same sex intimacy, um, and, um, a phrase that you use um, uh, called coon shouters. Um, and, and so I wondered if you could, uh, I think folks may, may have read about interracial romance and same-sex intimacies. Perhaps fewer listeners might know what coon shouters are. Can you talk a little bit about um, what coon shouters are and what significance they have uh, for San Francisco at this moment? So um, there was a bunch of uh, white women who were Jewish, who were uh, larger in body, who wanted to make it big on the stage, so to speak. Um, but they weren't considered sort of part of the mainstream. Um, there's a number of historians that say, quote, they were too fat and too Jewish to kind of be part of mainstream entertainment. Uh, and so they took up this uh, this 
thing called coon shouting, uh, which is considered a derogatory term. Uh, it's it's a form of theater that is about, it's similar to blackface, right? Um, however, the women were not corking up, so they weren't actually putting on blackface, but they would sing songs as if they were African-American, um, having, uh, you know, having sort of difficulty or forging love with both African-American as well as Filipino uh, lovers. Um, at this time, also, there's the Spanish-American War that's that's going on. And so there's a number of African-Americans who, uh, soldiers, who are actually experiencing great success in the Philippines. And so their kind of victories are also uh, being circulated in, in the continental U.S. Um, for me, this chapter really is about how um, you know, we see these moments of interracial uh, marriages and romance and connections, right? There's a number of white women who are definitely dedicated to Asian men, uh, be it Japanese or Chinese. Um, and there's also a lot of same-sex intimacies that are very clearly uh, queer in in what we would imagine in our contemporary context that are not written up as um, totally immoral or offensive during this time period. Uh, and at this, at, at the first glance, one might think that, oh, you know, this, there's so many interracial romances and so many same-sex affections that are happening on stage that it's a time of permissiveness, right? Um, but that would be like arguing that straight men who uh, marry women are are not misogynist, right? It's like it's absurd to think that simply because you're in a relationship with um, some a different uh, body than yours that you're uh, super. Uh, egalitarian and uh, equity driven towards that other body, right? That's not usually the case. And so um, I, th I think for me, I wanted to create a landscape where interracial as well as same-sex relationships could appear sort of accepted, uh, even within this framework where uh, folks of color, as well as what we might consider gay men and lesbians today, are not considered accepted. Uh, and to de debunk this no notion of San Francisco as both a wide open town, as well as an international city. Um, and so San Francisco also had a reputation of being able to handle its race problem, that it didn't have, in fact, a race problem, as did um, other states in the U.S. And we see that basically uh, because folks of color did not play a threat in, in San Francisco, um, because San Franciscans didn't imagine them to be threatening, and because same-sex sexuality or, quote, homosexuality as an identity was not even thinkable at this time period, that folks could get away with these unconventional relationships as a site of comedy in the press, uh, rather than as, as a site of, of immorality or terror. Um, what we see is that for a number of these interracial relationships that, in fact, um, like, for example, these white women who um, particularly liked Asian men, they would they would um, hang out dominantly in Asian circles uh, precisely because uh, the, the white community didn't think very highly of them. And so even as the press, the, the newspapers, the journals, those things like that did not necessarily pejoratively cast um, these kinds of relationships. In fact, the daily lives of interracial couples were quite difficult. Um, and part of what I wanted to illustrate here, too, is that I think there's a way in which today we think that positive stereotypes or positive depictions in the press mean that people have it easy, right? That somehow uh, we don't face racism, right? And so I wanted to continue to show that, uh, you know, even as, you know, there's representations of Asian men that are flattering, uh, that they're still facing uh, sort of dire circumstances on the streets of San Francisco. To what extent do you uh, would you say that um, class and social status and educational attainment also play a role in making these uh, sort of boundary crossings possible? One of the things that I noticed 
from chapter two was that, you know, some of these uh, interracial relationships were between, for example, a white woman and a Japanese dentist or a white woman and somebody who um, whose title is a reverend. So I assume he's a, a religious figure uh, of some educational um, achievement. Um, do you see class as a major issue in how this history plays out in San Francisco? So I do think that... Um for San Francisco at this time, there were, you know, types of interracial relationships that were both bound by class and not bound by class. So we have the instance of George Tauchi, who's basically an unemployed louse, um, who is engaging in interracial relationships, right? Um, and uh, and these it's basically white women also who um, don't have very high socioeconomic class status, who are engaging in, in Japanese laborers as well as uh, Chinese men. And then on the other spectrum, we do have like two Stanford grads, right, who uh, end up marrying, uh, as well as, de- you know, a, a Asian dentist who might marry a white woman and things like that. And so um, it, to me, in San Francisco, based on sort of what was written in the press, it seemed to cut across all classes. I know that for this time period, um, the literature on interracial relationships claims that it's mostly working class white women who end up um, you know, with men of color who are not necessarily prominent, that it's sort of the rabble that engages in these acts of disobedience around what's appropriate in terms of who to, who to date, who to marry. Uh, in San Francisco, however, I didn't find it to be only among the, quote, rabble that these interracial relationships took place. I found them also to be occurring um, in sort of the, the higher socioeconomic classes as well. And it could be that it's just more interesting to know that uh, a professor at Berkeley or a dentist is is with a white woman, right? It's kind of fascinating. And so the press will talk about it. But definitely in the press, um, there were many instances of folks with quite a bit of education, um, you know, being with other white women who also had quite a bit of education. That makes sense. Um, perhaps next we can talk, uh, turn to the, the next, um, three chapters. I'd love to actually talk about them together because I think, um, they, they, they make good foils for each other. These three chapters, chapter three, which is entitled deliver me from the brainy woman, the modern woman and the geisha chapter four is prostitution proliferates Mrs. Flirty in quotes and the willing Chinese slaves. And then chapter five is entitled managing masculinity, the heathen, the samurai and the best oriental. And the reason why I want to talk about them together um, is because they present um, the, the sort of different ways in, his, in, in which Chinese and Japanese men and women are held up as ways to assuage some of the anxieties around white manhood and white womanhood in turn of the century San Francisco. So I wondered if you could uh, maybe uh, sort of walk us through some of the threads that emerge and, and how uh, these uh, images of Chinese and Japanese men uh, and women um, work specifically the the question that I have, which I'm I'm really fascinated by, is how exactly this process took place. Was it, uh, you know, when it came to presenting uh, or popularizing images of, for example, the Japanese geisha or the Chinese prostitute uh, or the Japanese sort of muscular, uh, aggressive samurai uh, versus uh, the the sort of Chinese uh, dirty um, uh, heathen. Um, what exactly was the usefulness of these images for white San Franciscans? Uh, was it a matter of shifting blame? Was it a matter of sort of displacing uh, their own anxieties? How did these images work um, uh, historically for the anxieties and the problems that you talk about in these three chapters? So in the existing sort of scholarship, uh, definitely historians and cultural theorists, literary critics will say that um, Asian bodies, bodies of color were used as a site of shifting blame, displacing anxiety. Uh, Part of um, what my book is also trying to do is to say that it's also not just about anxiety, but it's about expanding gender and sexual freedom. I guess it's perhaps the other side of the same coin. Um, but what I really tried to do was to tie sort of gender and sexual history at the turn of the century, which is presumably white, with Asian American history, which is presumably straight. Um, and 
what I wanted to do was illustrate how um, the 1890s in some ways is the beginning of what we imagine as um, queer communities coming together, the making of a modern gay identity, right? So um, the, the white woman is becoming more modern, right? Meaning she's wearing more mannish clothes. She's wearing neckties. She's, uh, divorce rates are going up. They're leaving their husbands, right? Um, and it just, women seem to be becoming sort of almost impossible. Um, at the same time, women are also flowing into San Francisco uh, to be sex workers because it's lucrative business at the time in San Francisco. And as all these things are going on, San Francisco is very much embracing sort of these changes in, in femininity. And within that, at the same time, there's a proliferation of articles about Chinese and Japanese women who are even fewer in number than Chinese and Japanese men. Uh, so it's like, you know, 11% of that 3% uh, that, that are Asian are actually women. And so there's even very fewer number of women, yet imaginations are, are running wild. So as white women are wearing less fabric, right, they're wearing bloomers now, and talking back to their husbands, you know, you turn the page and then there's a short story about a Japanese geisha in a flowing kimono who basically kills herself for her white boyfriend uh, because she can't have him. Um, and then there's other instances where, where you know, you see uh, reports of sort of white women uh, coming into the city, right? These are in the city kind of municipal reports. They actually count how many sex workers are uh, white versus other races because they they had a regulated system of sex worker sex work that the city approved. Um, and that's going on at the same time that there's these uh, articles about Chinese women that are exploding, Chinese women prostitutes that are uh, you know exploding on the on the city newspapers as well as uh, literary journals. Notably in San Francisco, Chinese women prostitutes are at an all-time low, according to the census, in part because uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act had had basically stopped Chinese immigrants. Uh, but even before that, the Page Law actually uh, inhibited the migration of Chinese women into San Francisco on the suspicion uh, that they were immoral or sex workers. Notably, on the city streets of San Francisco, both Chinese and Japanese women at the time would be stopped by police and other authorities and then arrested and then uh, would go into deportation proceedings on the grounds that they were uh sex workers or immoral. And so again, there's these two different kind of racial stereotypes that are that are building, right? Um, and they in some ways have less impact on actual uh, Asian women's lives in San Francisco in that they both end up sort of uh, bearing the consequences of the negative stereotype. Uh, also, in the WAN ads, we, you know, if you imagine Japanese women, Japanese geishas as the epitome of domesticity, right? Uh, in the WAN ads, we see that Japanese and Chinese women are, are not desired as domestics, right? Uh, folks are usually asking for French women uh, to be the domestics in their homes. And in fact, there's an article in the Overland Monthly that talks about Japanese men uh, and French women being the best uh, homemakers or domestic helpers. Um, and so there's a way in which these different images of Chinese and Japanese women flourish as, as counterweights to the ways in which white women are uh, gaining increased gender and sexual freedom. Uh, but it also doesn't necessarily map out neatly into reality the, the realities of Japanese and Chinese women's lives. The interesting part of the question of masculinity is that this period is also seen, um, some, some gender scholars say it's a time of uh, of a crisis in masculinity. Um, but there's other feminist historians who say there was really no crisis in masculinity. In fact, uh, men still had power, right? But there's a way in which um, the, the way to be masculine expanded, right? So, so in the 1890s and also the early 1900s, uh, men increasingly believe that the bisexual man was ideal. Bisexual meaning man, a man with two 
a man with both female and male kind of uh, body parts, right? So that men wouldn't need women to reproduce, right? It would all be encapsulated in a single man and hence would also solve the rising divorce rates and, and marital problems that were happening among uh, heterosexual couples. And so there's a way in which then um, Japanese men initially embodied ideal femininity, right? As kabuki actors, as poets, as masters of flower arrangement, right? And Chinese men, for sure, were seen more as pimps, um, selling their their young daughters and and women into uh, sex work, but uh, and also seen as kind of uh, masculinity that's perverted, but also definitely threatening in terms of. Uh, heterosexuality. And so there was a concern that Chinese men would seduce white women into opium dens and, and corrupt them. At this time, Japanese women, uh, I'm sorry, at this time, Japanese men are notably applauded for their femininity. So it's actually not a bad thing to be feminine. It's seen as a plus, a sign of civility. Uh, but with the Russo-Japanese War and Japan's military victory, their stereotype quickly turns into this anachronistic, um, savage samurai masculinity. It's it's a I, I like it because it's a story in which Chinese and Japanese are distinctly different. Um, today we frequently think that all Orientals look the same, that Chinese and Japanese have always been conflated as the same and have never been seen as different, when in fact that wasn't the case uh, in the 1890s. Chinese and Japanese were seen as very different, and their difference was articulated through gender and sexuality, um, specifically through white folks' expansion of their own gender and sexual norms. Well, this leads us maybe to, um, and I'm going to um, actually, in the interest of time, I think maybe uh, skip over chapter six, which uh, readers uh, I think will find very interesting. The title of that chapter is Mindful Masquerades, White Privilege and the Politics of Dress. Uh, but because you've teed up so nicely for us uh, the existence of these divergent, uh, sometimes even conflicting images of Chinese and Japanese um, how that then comes to give rise to the Oriental, which is the subject of Chapter 7, Conscience Aroused, Gender, and Sexual Disinterest, and the Rise of the Oriental. So how do we get to the creation of this pan-ethnic uh, Oriental, um, and, and the making of the American Oriental is in the subtitle of the book, how does that come about in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, um, given uh, what we've seen uh, in in the previous years. So what's clear also in the representations uh, that we begin to see is that that things are starting to blur, right? So we'll hear, we'll read about a story of uh, a Japanese geisha who is sold into um, prostitution, uh, and her name is uh, Kaya Han or Cheryl, and her Japanese husband's name is Twa Cha, right? And she appears in an illustration wearing a kimono with a Japanese phoenix crown. And that image is then framed with a swirling dragon, which is more common in uh, Chinese versus Japanese imagery. And so um, basically what happens is that there's very few Chinese and Japanese in the city um, in the first place. And these folks, these white writers who are writing about Chinese and Japanese, they claim to be experts, but many of them have never even traveled to China and Japan. And so there's this sudden, I maybe I shouldn't say sudden, uh, the, there's a conflation that happens gradually, but almost immediately, um, even as um, there's these different divergent images of Chinese and Japanese women as, as well as men. Um, and we we see some of this conflation already in the ways in which uh, Chinese and Japanese immigrants are actually treated in San Francisco, right? So both Chinese and Japanese uh, immigrants, it's difficult for them to leave uh, you know, their residential areas, right? As soon as they come across a band of, of white youths, they usually get end up getting stoned or getting sticks thrown at them, getting chased down the block, right? And so they're getting treated in very, very similar ways, even as a reference to them in leisure culture, white leisure culture is very different. But in white leisure culture, also, we start seeing that the, the edges kind of melting is what I like to call it, is that 
all these kind of symbolisms start to merge. And what initially San Franciscans referred to as mongoloid, meaning Chinese, um, increasingly becomes replaced with the term oriental. So initially, uh, white women liked to do uh, English tea parties in San Francisco, and then they got bored, and then they started doing Japanese tea parties um, and, and serving things that you would find in an izakaya today, right, and then hiring a Japanese servant. But then within three or four years, they're now throwing oriental tea parties, but they have both uh, Chinese pussy willows and Japanese. Uh, cherry blossoms, and they're calling them both oriental kind of flowers, right? Um, and then serving all kinds of foods that are both Chinese and Japanese. Uh, and so there's a rapid conflation that happens of Chinese and Japanese culture in San Francisco that continues to enhance uh, white leisure and entertainment. So some who are listening to that might say, well, is that just intellectual laziness, right? Um, uh, or is there something more deliberate and insidious at work? Do you have a sense of um, of the sort of causality? Is it because, you know, some might just sort of say, well, they're just being, uh, they're not learning enough, they're not being rigorous enough, they're, they're not, you know, trying to dig deep enough to, and, and that's not surprising that, that um, you know, uh, they would be just trying to, to sort of uh, trade on caricatures in, in Oriental tea parties, for example. But is there something more, do you see something more deliberate going on in terms of the emergence of this pan-ethnic Asian Oriental uh, or Asian American Oriental? Um, or is it sort of a, a byproduct of uh, kind of uh, intellectual laziness and, and uh, caricatures um, melding together during this period? I think it's both um, intellectual laziness as well as uh, sort of insidiousness. Uh, I, I think the insidiousness is oftentimes unconscious, right? Like um, there's a way, I think there's a way in which uh, white folks at this time don't see Asians as having necessarily an ident- identity worthy of distinguishing. Um, and there's also a way in which uh, white folks have a sense of entitlement that they understand Asia, even though they don't. And so they think of themselves as experts of the Orient to bring sort of color into their lives. For many of these white writers also, the more they write about the Orient or whatever is fashionable for the day, the more likely they can sell their article, their short story to the literary magazine. So it's also very much driven by what they think will sell, the narratives that they think will sell. Um, and and so I think what, what, I, what I would like to underscore here is that um, less about sort of whether, uh, like I'm wondering whether it's important to think about whether they're being lazy or, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, I think the motivation around the conflation to me is less useful than what the conflation um, does in the end. So what are the consequences of the conflation? It's the ways in which uh, America continues to see Asians as exotic, as being both the geisha and the prostitute, right, of them being both um, the the gangster as well as effeminate, right, you know, in today's kinds of terms, right? and so to me, it's it's more interesting to think about sort of what that means in the end, what the conflation ultimately means versus sort of why white folks do it. Um, and, and, you know, this is probably just my disinterest being an ethnic studies scholar is I'm, I'm less interested in thinking about sort of why white folks do anything and more interested in thinking about sort of what that means for Asian America. Amy, we've taken up a lot of your time um, and, and I really appreciate that the sort of um, both your sharing of your um, family and personal history and how it's led you to this work and also the the really fascinating substance of the work. And I, I wish we had more time to talk about the book. But um, before we let you go, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment uh, or what your next project will be. So I've begun, begun working on a textbook on API queer history, um, and I'm calling it API, Qu- API Queer History and Introduction. Um, And really, the last chapter of this book, Discriminating Sex, uh, sort of leads into uh, this textbook project that I'm 
that I'm embarking on. Um, so in the epilogue or the very last, the conclusion of this book, there's a story about a fellatio ring that is busted on 2525 Baker Street. Uh, and it's sort of the beginnings of what we would understand as a, a gay community, right? A bunch of white men gather and they uh, sing uh musicals and they also read poetry to each other on the first floor and then on the second floor they engage in anal sex and also uh, oral sex as well. Um, but there's a number of things that that facilitate uh, both um, the, the, the ways in which these men are able to meet each other and also the ways in which they're busted. So for example there's a Chinese servant that's placed uh, at uh, 2525 Baker Street to kind of take notes for the cops. Um, there's also on way the, 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 the white men who find each other to figure out if they're gay or not, they cruise each other up and down Gary Street and they realize that um, somebody might be gay, but if they're looking at sort of oriental uh, vases or oriental art in the window. Um, and then they frequently went to a Chinese lodging house to have sex because the Chinese were not um, so, so morally judgmental. And then they also finally, uh, they would go to um, uh, it, what was explicitly, quote, an oriental or uh, uh, bathhouse, frequently called the Turkish bathhouse, but they were called the oriental Turkish bathhouse. And they would go there um, specifically um, and not go to the 20 other bathhouses in the city. And so there's a way in which um, a sort of the, the idea of the Oriental actually facilitated this modern gay identity. Uh, and I'm hoping to sort of use that as a springboard to, to create an argument around um, this textbook project that I've begun working on. I've talked to a number of um, other historians. I was at a conference and a Latin Americanist came up to me um, and he told me that he's been looking at sort of uh, gay Mexican men who traveled up and down the coast of California during this time period. And he said that a number of them actually came up to California and then uh, bought kimonos and then went back to Mexico and would be able to find other signal to other gay men on the street that they were gay by wearing their kimono uh, in public. And so I do think that there's a way in which, quote, the Orient facilitated uh, this modern uh, gay American identity that we, as we understand it today. That's fascinating. And, and it would be such a great addition to uh, API studies and API history. Um, Amy, I, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope the folks who are listening uh, will take the time to, to dig more into to your book, Discriminating Sex, White Leisure, and the Making of, a, of the American Oriental. Amy, thank you again and take care. Thank you. That was my conversation with Amy Sueyoshi. Interim Dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University and author of the new book, Discriminating Sex, White Leisure and the Making of the American Oriental, published in 2018 by the University of Illinois Press. I'm Ian Shin, and you've been listening to New Books in Asian American Studies. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.